I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. He's never ready, so who is it? <laughs> we're all like, we're ready, we're ready, and then he looked at you and you just Hey Dave. Yes. I'm ready. And welcome to another episode of Unearthing Paranormalcy, the podcast that digs into the paranormal and tries to find normalcy in the topic. I'm Amy. I'm Dave. I'm Jen. And I'm Eli. And I'm Mr. Crawley. And uh, we're going to wrap up our Crawley episode. So, Unlike he ever did. (laughs) (laughs) So after our... um, in shout outs and the end credits and all that fun stuff. I think we're going to sit around and talk a little bit about Crowley. So if you stick around after the outro, you can listen to a little bit of unedited, unscripted Crowley talk. Oh boy. So Dave, let's dig. Where we left off, Crowley had gained the moniker, the wickedest man in the world, and had been deported from Sicily by Mussolini. Mussolini kicked him out. That's how horrible of a person he was. (laughs) The Scarlet Woman Leah left with Crowley, but Ninette and the others stayed behind at the Abbey of Thelema. In Tunis, Crowley dictated his autobiography to Leah. He battled his drug addiction, worried about money, and suffered from impotence. Aw, poor me. You mean his little dick went stop working? He had sworn a holy vow of obedience to Leah, but her mere presence, not anything she does, disturbs. Her days as the Scarlet Woman were numbered. Collins had canceled the contract for confessions, but Crowley was determined to get his life written out on paper. He was probably also compelled by cocaine, which he was psychologically addicted to now. He was in a lot of denial. He considered the Abbey a success and dreamed of starting another one in a more suitable location. Over time, he confided thoughts of suicide in his diary. He blamed the drugs, but also wrote stopping them could leave him a shadow of my former self. Why drag out a useless life, dishonoring my reputation, discrediting my methods? Suicide should not be taken as indication of failure, but of the determination to be done with a worn-out tool, or to make way for a new one, or perhaps to get a new one oneself. Crowley actually came close to admitting he made some mistakes when he wrote, Is it possible or even probable that a man may be misled by the enthusiasms of illumination, people may expect to get themselves into all those kinds of trouble, which result 
from uncritical enthusiasms about the revelation which are made of them. He reflected if true, they should unhesitantly stick to the course that are ordinarily decency indicates. He also wrote during this time, If a man fucks a woman, he admires her aesthetically. When a man fucks me, I want to know it is for my beauty. <laughs> mm-hmm, girlfriend. What? <laughs> what? He wants to if you pretty. stick your dick inside me, I want to know I'm beautiful. Tell me I'm pretty. You're pretty, Crowley. You're pretty. <laughs> pan, pan, pan. <laughs> is that what two nuts sound slapping together? <laughs> I want to know. In late July, Crowley took a magical retirement at the Tunisia Palace Hotel the most expensive place in town. Here he took a young man named Muhammad as his lover. Leah didn't join him. She stayed back with a man named Mud, who had brought quite a bit of much-needed money into the order after the deportation. This is when Mud and Leah fell in love. Mud proposed marriage, believing that if he and Leah were wet, she could fulfill her role as the whore of Babylon more fully when she performed opera with Crowley. Crowley didn't like it and forbid their union. He wasn't interested in Elia any longer, but he still needed her help. He convinced Mutt that he was not really in love with Leah and sent him off on a magical holiday. Then in October, Crowley, Leah, and Muhammad went to the desert. On the sands near Nefta, they all smoked hashish and performed opera in various combinations. After a few days, the three became ill and returned to Tunis. While recovering, Crowley wrote a pamphlet criticizing Mussolini and worked on a commentary about the Book of the Law. When you're reading that part about them in the desert, in my head, I'm like, I'm out in the desert on a horse with no name. I just had that through my head. <laughs> <laughs> on December 29, 1923, Crowley left Tunis behind. He also left Leah and Mud penniless. Crowley's plan was to buy a Parisian newspaper called the Evening Telegram. It didn't work out. To maintain himself in Paris, Crowley pawned his magical jewels, bells, and sword, along with a fur coat and a cigarette case. Not the fur! He believed in the secret chiefs and his mission. On January 24th, for just a moment, he doubted himself. He confessed he had no strength left and had lost interest in everything. It was an effort for him to get out of bed and a challenge to get dressed. He wanted to die. He questioned if he had ever done anything of value. He had given up on the idea of curing himself of his drug addiction by this point. By this time, Leah had pawned Crowley's magical ring and returned to Cephalu. Mud remained behind in Tunis. Then Crowley, out of the blue, sent him some money for Mud to come to Paris with him. Mud informed Crowley upon his arrival that, that the residents of the Abbey of Thelema were facing eviction due to unpaid rent. Crowley needed to move his things, especially his library. Mud arranged for them to be shipped to England, but Crowley's books would be seized by customs and destroyed. Crowley sent Mud to London on a fundraising mission. Jane Wolfe was already there, working as a nursing home. Lee arrived in March. She was still mad at Crowley for abandoning her in Tunis and ignoring her pleas for help. 
mud joint, and accused Crowley of avoiding the obligations given to him by the Book of the Law. Crowley, as typical, turned on Mudd when Mudd told Crowley it was his own will to marry Leah. The beast replied that Mudd could best fulfill his magical task by getting a job, saving money, insuring himself with Crowley as the beneficiary, and then committing suicide. Burn! <laughs> that's, uh, that's one way to tell somebody to go kill himself. <laughs> Hell, what did say? Fuck off, huh? Yeah, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> On May 1st, the hotel Crowley was staying at in Paris sold, and the new owner was less thalamically inclined. He kicked Leah and Crowley out. They landed on their feet in a quiet village outside Paris, where they enjoyed a quiet summer. Crowley continued to dictate confessions as Leah scribed. He also passed occult knowledge to Alexander Zolzolar. Then, the inevitable happened. A 32-year-old American woman named Dorothy Olson came to seek magical instruction and was even willing to pay for it. She was attractive, blonde, full of life, and neurotic. Leah, at 41 and addicted to heroin, was haggard and weary. Dorothy Olson was initiated into the AA and christened Sor Astrid, Crowley then announced the secret chiefs wanted him and Dorothy to take a magical retirement together without Leah. And just like that, Leah was no longer the Scarlet Woman. Is this where the Olsen twins come from? (laughs) What a cliffhanger. (laughs) On September 23rd, Crowley and his new Scarlet Woman headed for Marcellus. Crowley told Leah before they departed that he did not know when he would see her again. She collapsed. Leah was again abandoned, penniless, ill, and addicted. A telegram from Nanette informed her that her sister Alma had taken custody of her son Hansi, and they were going to America. She was then thrown out of her hotel. Norman Mudd returned from London and shared her misery. The two of them were homeless in Paris and starving. They ignored Crowley's instructions and got married in a ritual devised by Leah. Her letters to Crowley pleading for help were ignored. He did, however, write her back to give magical instructions, but never offered any help. She was able to get a job washing dishes at a cafe, but that barely covered her heroin. So she prostituted herself to make ends meet. Becoming the whore of Paris? Meanwhile, Crowley enjoyed the Tunisian sun, and inspired by Sor Astrid, he began writing poetry again. On the voyage from France, he composed a manifesto entitled To Man. It later formed part of The Heart of the Master, which was kind of like a spiritual autobiography. While Leah and Mud starved and struggled, Crowley used the money he got to fashion a magical jewel for his new flame's forehead. They performed important 10th degree opera. Crowley still needed a male heir. In March of 1925, Leah headed to Marcellus en route to Tunis, which is where Crowley and Dorothy were now living. The 10th degree magical working was successful, and Dorothy was pregnant. But her health was also bad, and she was not used to the drugs that accompanied Crowley's daily magical workings. 
Crowley had instructed Leah to come to help. Things were getting bad. Dorothy was giving Crowley a hard time. And according to him, Dorothy had even made him give her a black eye, shattering her cheekbone in the process. Asshole. Dorothy miscarried before Leah arrived, and Crowley and Dorothy went to France. This left Leah again abandoned and in poverty, somewhere between Paris and Tunis. One of Crowley's fixations was a prophecy in the Book of the Law concerning, quote, a rich man from the West, unquote, one who would solve all of his financial problems. This man turns up in the summer of 1925. But first, I have to tell you a little backstory. After Theodore Roos suffered a stroke in 1922, Crowley was determined to become the head of the OTO. Crowley claimed that before Roos died in 1923, he appointed him as the outer head of the order, or the OHO, despite the fact they had a falling out back in 1921. He had no proof of this, so they appointed Heinrich Tranker, also known as Freder Regnartis, to the temporary head of the order. Tranker had a vision in which he saw Crowley as the world teacher and invited Crowley to an OTO convention held in Hohenlubin, near the Czech border, to discuss his possible leadership. Crowley, Dorothy, Leah, and Mudd had their fares paid by Carl Germer, also known as Freder Saturnus. Germer also paid off Crowley's debts in Paris. He was Crowley's main benefactor for the rest of his life, the, quote, rich man from the West, unquote. This was due to the fact that when they met, Germer told Crowley that he was sexually confused and had never reached satisfaction with a woman. He fantasized himself as a hermaphrodite and had no understanding of magic. Crowley helped sort this all out for him. Oh, yes. So for this meeting they were heading to in Berlin, Crowley sent ahead the Book of the Law so it could be translated into German. We've already discussed how some OTO members react to Crowley's rewriting of their rituals. When Tranker read Das Buch des Gesetzes, he was appalled. Other members agreed that it was demonically inspired. They believed that Crowley's philosophy presaged a, quote, primitive world order, unquote, suggesting the, quote, blackest days of Atlantis, unquote. But then Tranker had a second vision, in which he saw the Book of the Law encapsulating the idea of civilization. After that, he supported Crowley. The conference itself was split along pro-Crowley and anti-Crowley lines. Crowley, you could say, divided and conquered, securing his position as the outer head of the order of the OTO. It was also here Leah and Mudd were taken in by a theosophist who had studied with Madame Blavatsky, named Martha Kunzel. This began the start to Leah and Mudd's coming to terms with Crowley's fickleness and their eventual break away from him. Blavatsky saves! <laughs> After this meeting, Dorothy's position as a scarlet woman crumbled. The two returned to Tunis where Crowley wrote his quote-unquote comment on the Book of the Law, which states the study of this book is forbidden and those who discuss it are to be shunned as centers of pestilence. One of Dorothy's last services to Crowley was to write Henry Ford 
explaining that his opposition to organized labor was in keeping with the ideas of the Lima. By October 1926, Dorothy had become an alcoholic, and reports are she drank herself to death in 1930. Leah eventually overcame her addiction to Crowley and renounced him. In 1929, she circulated a letter from Switzerland disclaiming her role as the Scarlet Woman. She then returned to America, went back to teaching, and died in 1951. As for Mudd, in 1934, he filled his pants with stones, tied them off with bicycle clips, and walked out into the sea. For the next few years, back in Paris and free from Dorothy, Crowley, with Carl Germer's money, began living the extravagant lifestyle he was accustomed to. He took a flat on 55th Avenue to Suffren. Germer's wife was less than happy. She wrote to the Beast complaining that the money they gave was spent on expensive cigars, cognac, cocktails, taxis, dinners, anything you desire at the moment. She even suggested that God Almighty himself would not have been as arrogant. Crowley ran through potential Scarlet Woman. His rigorous screening process soon eliminated several. At one point, he claimed to be juggling nine mistresses. He, of course, also performed the occasional 11th degree magic workings. Crowley, at this point, was over 50, drug-addled, ill, overweight, bald, his teeth were bad, and his breath reeked of ether. The magic must be working because he was still able to attract both women and men despite this. You've you seen how meth addicts seem to have all kinds of... Yeah, yeah it works. You want a free base from Crowley? <laughs> In 1928, Crowley accepted the offer from Israel Rigardi for him to come to Paris and be his unpaid secretary. Rigardi was born in 1907, and his search for occult wisdom began at age 15, when he read Blavatsky's Secret Doctrine. At 18, he attended a lecture about Crowley's ideas and wrote to Crowley. Rigardi arrived on October 12, 1928. It was Crowley's 53rd birthday. In a thin, slurring voice, Crowley proclaimed the law to Rigardi. His eyes, gleaming over the dark bags beneath him, inclined to fix themselves in one position and bore in. Rigardi almost immediately handed over his savings of $1,200. Not only did Rigardi work for Crowley unpaid, but Crowley made him pay for his magical instruction. Crowley says he took Rigardi's savings to free him of any attachment to money. And to our listeners, if you want to hand over your savings, I will free you of any of your attachment to money as well. (laughs) Like Newberg, Mudd, and Maitland, Rigardi was a nervous, inhibited, self-conscious character. Speaking with Crowley, he felt completely exposed. That very evening after dinner, Crowley, his current Scarlet Woman, the Polish Casimira Bass, performed an opus before Rigardi. He flustered and left the room. Crowley took note, and his first assignment for his new recruit was to visit as many brothels as possible. Crowley's quote-unquote teaching mostly aimed to make applicants more like himself. He also told Rigardi, which he called the serpent, 
to order a suit from his tailor and send him the bill. Time to suit up, (laughs) y'all. Not long after Regardi's arrival, Casimira Bass departed, and the Scarlet Woman's office was once again vacant. Then Gerald York, a very wealthy man, came to Paris to learn from Crowley after reading the Equinox. Crowley met him at the airport. In the 1920s, only the extremely wealthy used air travel. York joined the AA and became Crowley's business advisor and financial manager. It seems there were now two rich men from the West. York and Regardi often met in Crowley's fat. York... <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> you know, honestly... You bet they did. Oh, my God. Often met in, their, in his fat. His More push, cushion for the pushing. York and Regardi often met in Crowley's flat, where Regardi also lived. Here they were subjected to a regiment of late hours, chess, cigar and pipe smoke, copious alcohol, and drugs. They were always concerned Crowley would try some homosexual monkey tricks. <laughs> but Crowley never did. <laughs> they, they fling their shit, right? Crowley's next scarlet woman was the 40-ish Maria Teresa Ferrari de Miramar. Damn. <laughs> a native of Nicaragua. And a name that fit Crowley's self-esteem. <laughs> Crowley called her the high priestess of voodoo. They met at the end of 1928 and were soon in the sexual, emotional, and magical turbulence that accompanied Crowley's affairs. Crowley was spending a considerable amount of time working on magic and theory and practice, a continuation of Book 4. He would combine Western and Eastern occult systems, much like how Madame Blavatsky did. Then he incorporated the law of Thelema throughout the whole thing. In essence, Crowley tries to modernize magic, in an attempt to free it of its traditional drawbacks, in an effort to anchor it in the psyche and imagination of the magician. He also sprinkles in hints of hidden knowledge, making parts of it either sound fascinating or confusing. Clearly, it's an effort to get readers to seek him out. In chapter 12, after an assessment of different sacrificial animals, Crowley says, A male of perfect innocence and high intelligence is the most satisfactory and suitable victim. In the footnote by this, he writes, Freder Perduabo made this sacrifice 150 times a year between 1912 and 1928. While the word magic has no direct sexual reference, we know the two words can have the same meaning at times in Crowley's writings. Many who read this thought he was speaking of child sacrifice. And the authors of the tabloids sure hope that was true, and did in fact publish that it was. But what Crowley is talking about is the sacrifice of his own sperm, and his fixation and obsession for a male heir. Or, he might have just put it in there as a practical joke. Crowley writes of the astral plane, the magician may go for a long time being fooled and flattered by the astrals, that he him he has himself modified and m- manufactured. They will pretend to show him marvelous mysteries, inclined to accept them as true, for the very reason that they are the images of himself, idealized by imagination. 
He will become increasingly interested in himself. Imagine himself to be attaining one initiation after another. His ego will expand unchecked till he seems to himself to have the heaven at his feet. Yet all this will be nothing but the fool's face of Narcissus smirking up from the pool that will drown him. Kind of sounds like Crowley is um, coming to terms with his own narcissism there. Yeah, to me it also sounds similar to the realizations and musings Crowley made after his expulsion from Cephalu. I wonder if he himself ever made this connection. Probably not. I wouldn't see why. <laughs> he hasn't made any connections thus far. <laughs> Before publishing Magic and Theory in Practice, Crowley hired a publicity agent to revamp his public profile. All right, I need you to go on Facebook and Twitter, and you're going to post this picture. I need you to do duck face with a peace sign. And a penis. <laughs> no, oh my no, God, Crowley's no, so cool. No penises, okay? That'll get you banned. But you can tweet like really hateful things to people who are mean to you. Also, you can tweet your nipple. That's and you fine. just call all the other tabloids fake news. <laughs> C. Vidal Hunt took on the daunting, discouraging, demoralizing, disheartening <laughs> task of relaunching Crowley's career. Poor guy. Hunt soon discovered not only did Crowley have many enemies, but he was also his own worst enemy. Like an old dog, Crowley could not be taught new tricks. He also couldn't act out of character, even for the sake of his own best interests. Hunt also had other problems with Crowley. Hunt tried to involve Crowley in a scheme with a rich American widow and a pauper Spanish aristocrat. Crowley was to write out a phony horoscope, informing the widow that Don Luis Fernando was her Mr. Wright. Crowley surprisingly declined and warned the widow about the scheme. Hunt responded by going to the French authorities. Regardi's sister had also contacted them previously, worried for her brother. On January 17, 1929, Crowley was visited by an inspector. After questions about his past, drugs, magic, and Kabbalah, the inspector expressed a desire to study it. Crowley believed he had made a good impression, but the inspector's superiors did not. A month later, the Minister of the Interior issued an expulsion order for Crowley, the High Priestess, and the Serpent. They had 24 hours to comply and leave France. Crowley did manage to extend his stay a little bit longer by claiming illness. He had to work quick, and get magic and theory and practice published. No English publisher would touch it. Gerald York and Carl Germer paid for Lecom Press, a French publisher, to do it. On April 12th, Crowley received a copy of it. He was ecstatic when it was released to the public. The book, Crowley Had Written for All, received very few reviews. Less than a week later, he was headed to Brussels where Regardi and Maria had wound up after they would not be allowed into Britain. After a short stay, Crowley returned to England. Colonel Carter of Scotland Yard might actually have paid for his passage, after York had convinced him Crowley was not as bad as he was made out to be. Carter was interested in helping Crowley, 
in exchange for favors to be called in later. The tabloids growled about Crowley's evil doings and speculated about his expulsion from France. The expulsion in reality was most likely because of Crowley's work on the fatherland in America and the fact he was the head of a German occult organization. Therefore, the authorities probably suspected he was a German spy. Back in Brussels, where Rigardi and the Scarlet Woman were, they had found solace in each other's embrace and performed unscheduled opus. <gasps> Rigardi was concerned about what the master would think. The two soon found other troubles. The Belgians wanted the two out of their country also. They're going to end up being stuck in Antarctica because everybody's going <laughs> to kick them out. Now, Rigardi eventually was able to enter Britain, which I don't know why he wasn't in the first place. He was a British citizen, but... But as for the Scarlet Woman, Carl Germer had her transported to Leipzig, where she stayed with Martha Kunzel. Crowley then went to the Scarlet Woman, and on August 16, 1929, Crowley married Maria. The main reason was to facilitate Maria's entry into England. Once in London, he found a publisher for Confessions, Moonchild, and a collection of stories called The Stratagem and Other Stories. Bookshops refused to carry the Confessions. The enormous A of Crowley's signature on the cover resembles an erect penis, including the testicles. It's one of those things where you don't see it until you see it. <laughs> Then after which, you can't unsee it. <laughs> Very true. I'll put a picture up on the Facebook group. Don't get banned. <laughs> We're going to get banned. Don't do that. It's a, it's a signature. It's a drawing. It's fine. <laughs> the first two volumes of the Confessions of Aleister Crowley appeared in 1930. The remaining four weren't released until 1969 in a single unabridged one-volume version edited by John Simons and Kenneth Grant. By August 1st, 1930, Crowley had decided to return to Germany, where he felt more appreciated. He was already on the outs with his wife and Scarlet Woman Maria. She had begun drinking heavily and was hysterical. I think you have to be to be married to him. <laughs> exactly. He paid less and less attention to her and more to his lovers, and she did the same to him. At his farewell party, she drank herself to unconsciousness and he just left her on the floor. He cut ties and instructed his lawyers to start divorce proceedings. In his diary, all he wrote was, Dismissed wife without notice. One of Crowley's first lovers in Berlin was the teenager Hani. At first, she performed excellent at opera, especially Pervas Nefandum. Crowley christened her the monster. She was an odd girl. She liked Crowley to use her as a WC. Do y'all know what that is? The hell's a WC? A toilet. Yeah. <laughs> she was also less than stable. Obviously. Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> they got into a huge argument at the hotel in London uh, when they went back for a visit. After they were kicked out, she bolted as Crowley was checking them into another one. He found her two days later boarding a, sh a boat heading back to Germany. But it was too late. He'd have to catch another one. Before he did, Crowley faked a suicide at the Boca di Inferno, an arched rock formation near the sea. 
He left a note under a cigarette case that read, I cannot live without you. Crowley then left back to Germany while his new friend, Fernando Pessoa, spread the story. The press picked it up and ran stories about the mysterious disappearance of the infamous black magician. In Berlin, Crowley found Hani and they patched things up. On October 11, 1930, the mystery of his disappearance was solved when he got some paintings of his displayed at a gallery in Berlin. The suicide trick didn't work, and he didn't sell any of his paintings. Hani by now was deeply depressed, sobbed constantly, and spoke mostly of suicide. Crowley's wife Maria was not doing so well either. On June 16, 1931, she was admitted to the Colony Hatch Lunatic Asylum, suffering manic depression, paranoia, and delusions. By June of 1931, Hani had left Crowley. She would kill herself not long after this. Jeez. Crowley was unfazed. He had already met Hani's replacement. And as for his wife, Maria, that was York and Germer's problem now. At least until he could get her to sign the papers, releasing his financial responsibilities to her. But ah, oh yes, the 36-year-old Bertha Bush. She was into S&M, drugs, drink, pervas nefandum, and all the rest. These two loved to fight. There was one incident where two Nazi youths roughed Crowley up after they saw him slapping Bertha against a wall. On another occasion, she stabbed Crowley <laughs> with a butcher knife. Good girl. For a time, Crowley shared a flat with Gerald Hamilton. One night, Hamilton returned home and found Bertha drugged up and trussed up, with a note pinned to her advising not to untie her. <laughs> the flat was usually strewn with broken dishes because Bertha was a thrower. Crowley paraded her around, introducing her to people like Isherwood and the poet Stephen Splendor. Gerald Hamilton, Crowley's flatmate, was a communist and he introduced Crowley to some of the leading communists in town. Crowley did his best to convert them to Thelema. This was also the time after Colonel Carter of Scotland Yard had called in his favor for helping Crowley get to London from Brussels after his deportation from France. Crowley was instructed to report to the colonel all of Hamilton's activities. Crowley relayed back anything of note happening with Nazis, nationalists, communists, secret societies, and anything else he thought might help. But the ironic thing was that Hamilton was doing the exact same thing for the, for the Nazis concerning Crowley. It's like a really demented episode of like... <laughs> <laughs> was it uh, Perfect Strangers or... <laughs> <laughs> the Nazis were keen on any information about cult societies, Freemasons, and Illuminati. They had even began neutralizing some of these threats this early in time. Crowley liked Berlin. He felt at home there. But he eventually had to return to England. Being kicked out of his flat with Gerald Hamilton was one of the main factors. On June 21st, 1932, he returned to London. Just in the nick of time, huh? Yep. yep. Israel Regardi broke with Crowley in 1932 over... The nasty, petty, vicious louse that occasionally he was. 
As for Crowley's wife, Maria, she would remain institutionalized for the rest of her life. Crowley held some successful lectures, one in September of 1932, on the philosophy of magic. One in October on the elixir of life, our magical medicine, for the National Laboratory of Psychical Research. Crowley's topic for this particular one was the benefits of a tonic he devised using his own semen. He sold these rejuvenation pills, which he named Amrita, the elixir of life. According to Crowley, they were 100% effective. We could think of them as a homemade modern-day equivalent of Viagra. So hold on. He was using his semen as a means to rejuvenate life? As a way of uh, getting it up. Yeah. How much? uh, (laughs) In January of 1933, Crowley noticed an advertisement for his novel Moonchild in the window of a bookstore on Parade Street. The ad mentioned that Diary of a Drug Fiend had been withdrawn from circulation after being attacked by the press. The book, however, was not withdrawn. It was just allowed to go out of print. This is considered libel. At least Crowley thought so. And this could not go unchallenged. He sued the bookseller. And when the case was heard in May, the judge remarked that there wasn't the slightest grounds for believing that anything Crowley wrote was indecent or improper. Somebody had been paid off. (laughs) Then the court granted Crowley 50 pounds in damages with cost. The funny thing is... Neither the bookseller or his defense team pointed out that the advertisement directly quoted the description Crowley had written himself for the book's dust jacket. (laughs) What? (laughs) This gave Crowley the confidence to go after a friend with a libel lawsuit. The year before this, Nita Hamnett, a former AA member and friend of Crowley's for over 20 years, published her memoirs, Laughing Torso. She even wrote to Crowley to notify him he was mentioned in it and assure him everything was very nice and agreeable, no libel, no no rubbish. Crowley discovered that the memoirs said he practiced black magic in Cephalu, that a baby had disappeared when he was living at the Abbey of Thelema. There was also an incident that happened with a goat. Crowley declared Nina was wrong. Before a long-time friend, being a long-time friend, he did offer to settle out of court with her. Nina disagreed, and her publisher, Constable and Company, funded a defense. Crowley was advised to get witnesses to testify to his integrity, which proved rather difficult. Even the commissioner of Diary of a Drug Fiend, J.D. Beersford, thought he should just drop the shaky case. Crowley was undeterred. (laughs) Crowley's counsel was worried, and while considering what might come into light in court, they dug through Crowley's publishings. A copy of White Stains, they decided, would crumble the case if it got into the defense's hands. In April of 1934, with Crowley on the stand, the defense went straight to the point. They asked Crowley if he was filing suit because his reputation was damaged. Then they made it very clear that Mr. Crowley had no reputation to tarnish. They asked him if he was not called the wickedest man in the world. 
They ask him if he did not, for the most of his life, openly defy all moral conventions and display contempt for Christianity. They asked him, Are you not called the B666 and the Master Therion? Crowley actually answered that the B666 meant sunlight. Then he proposed to be called, quote unquote, little sunshine. The fuck? (laughs) He has lost his fucking mind. This made the audience laugh, but the judge and jury were not amused. Then the defense brought out the case crumbler, a copy of White Stains. Betty May, the widow of Ryle Loveday, testified to the squalid scenes she had witnessed at the Abbey of Thelema, all the way down to the obscene home decorations that adorned the walls of the place. After four days, Crowley lost the case and had to pay cost. The judge remarked, in his 40 years of service, he had never heard such dreadful, horrible, blasphemous, and abominable stuff as that which has been produced by the man who describes himself to you as the greatest living poet. For Crowley, this case bankrupted him. His debts amounted to nearly 5,000 pounds. Shortly after the case, he was fined for illegally obtaining letters of Betty Mays that he used in court. This judge spared him and gave him probation on the grounds if he was seen in court again, Crowley would be sentenced to six months. Crowley's view on the libel trial was that the verdict brought general joy, the consternation of Constable and Co. All of Crowley's hopes Dreams, plans, and fantasies about being recognized as a great poet, thinker, or prophet should have ended. Crowley's reputation was now truly unrecoverable. But the great beast endured on to the end. Crowley loved being back in the spotlight again. Even if it was as the wickedest man in the world, he loved that publications were still talking about him. Even bad publicity is good publicity. Publicity. Crowley had by this time acquired his last scarlet woman, a 35-year-old widow named Pearl Brooksmith. According to the I Ching, she was looking for the quote-unquote great man. What she got instead was Crowley. And they performed her first opus per Manu in August of 1933. Pearl was fond of saying... I feel the flame of fornication creeping up my body. <laughs> Those are crabs. Those are fucking crabs. Run. <laughs> Crowley's attention was diverted to 19-year-old Patricia Doherty. The legend goes, she approached him after the libel trial, declaring the verdict was the worst thing since the crucifixion. Then she offered to be the mother of his heir. The real story is rather long, but the outcome is the same. Crowley's only son, who he named Ataturk, was born on May 2nd, 1937, four years after they met at this trial. Ataturk. What the <laughs> fuck kind of name is that? He's I don't even know if I pronounced it right. It might be Ataturk. It doesn't matter. Ataturk? I, I don't know. However you pronounce that, it's a terrible name. In 1933, 
After the libel trial had shattered him, life with Pearl was rough. Many of his old friends avoided him, wisely. Lewis Wilkerson even told his son Oliver, who was a grown man now, not to give Crowley his address. Crowley was living in a slum in Paddington Green. A visitor at the time recalled being met by a copulent man dressed in plush furs that reeked of alcohol. Crowley introduced Pearl as the Blessed Virgin and excused himself to use a machine for his asthma. Pearl explained to the visitor they had recently been thrown out of a flat near Regent Park Sioux and that Crowley needed someone to quote-unquote mother him. The poor thing, an only child. They also had trouble with the landlord here. He had unfortunately discovered them naked in the basement, performing a rite of pan. Pearl, like Rose and Maria, would wind up in a mental home. Carl Germer, a.k.a. the rich man from the West, was forced to return to Germany in 1935 after his visa had expired. Hitler had banned the OTO, the AA, and nearly every other occult fraternal organization. Germer was placed into a concentration camp almost as soon as he arrived in Germany. He was released after 10 months and went to Belgium. Pearl Brooksmith wanted so badly to give Crowley the kinds of visions previous Scarlet Women had, and she wanted desperately to give Crowley a child, but her health soon suffered. In January 1936, she had a hysterectomy. She began to suffer hallucinations and was sent to a mental home. From here, she would write to Crowley begging to be taken away because under her bed was the devil and he wanted to kidnap her. Crowley just ignored her, focusing his attention instead on the aforementioned Patricia Doherty. Crowley's impotence had worsened and the necessary 10th degree opuses required quite a bit of effort. By now, Crowley was in his 60s. Every day was a struggle for him, a struggle to pay rent, a struggle with heroin, and a struggle to not be ill. He had lost many friends, mostly due to his many flaws, but a few were lost due to the reputation that followed him. Crowley did manage to do some more writing, like a small volume called Little Essays in Truth. In the essay Trance, Crowley a reaffirms his basic model in something he sought his entire life. The whole and sole object of the true magical and mystical training is to become free from every kind of limitation. In 1937, Equinox of the Gods was published, funded by Israel Regardi and Gerald York. This consisted of the Book of the Law, an account of Crowley's magical career, and a reproduction of the steel of revealing. Here's a fun fact. It was published with a typo and actually read the steel of reveling, which kind of fits better, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> on Christmas Eve 1937, York and Crowley went on a pub crawl. They abducted a Jew, an Indian, an African, and a Malaysian. And then they wrote a really bad joke. Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> fuck <laughs> They took them to Cleopatra's Needle on the Thames Embankment. At 6.22 a.m. as the sun entered Capricorn in the shadow of the ancient obelisk, Crowley proclaimed the law, announcing it 
as a charter of universal freedom. He handed a copy of the book of he handed a copy of the book Equinox of the Gods to the representatives of each race. You can read more about this in The Great Beast by John Simons, the first biography about Crowley, published in 1951. Around this time, Crowley gave his eight lectures on yoga. When inspired, old Crowley could still draw on his wit and clarity. He received correspondence from his readers, mostly asking for magical or personal advice. On September 1, 1939, England declared war on Germany. Much has been written about Crowley's involvement in intelligence work during World War II. There's a lot to unpack to determine the truth from the speculation and the folktale. Unfortunately, we are going to have to table it and feature it in its own episode at a later date. Maybe we can also include in that episode Dion Fortune and discuss her part in quote-unquote occult warfare during the Second World War. In 1940, Karl Germer was arrested in Belgium because of his German nationality and sent to a French concentration camp for another 10 months. Germer endured through this by concentrating on his holy guardian angel and meditating on Crowley's holy books. In 1941, he immigrated to America until his death in 1962. Reports say that while in the U.S., the FBI harassed Germer because they suspected he was a Nazi spy. Crowley's writings of propaganda for the Fatherland paper back during the First World War didn't help. Crowley was suspected of being Germer's quote-unquote controller. But when he was able, the quote rich man from the West unquote sent money to Crowley. Crowley's last major work was the Book of Toth, his essay on the tarot. Crowley collaborated with Lady Frida Harris. These two did not become lovers, even though she was interested in the occult and looked to him as a teacher. The entire project took about seven years. Crowley's central belief was that the tarot originated in Egypt and is based on Kabbalah's Tree of Life. Every idea, every symbol, Crowley tells us, contains its contradictory meaning. One must keep in mind the prevalence of every symbol, insistence upon either one or the other of the contradictory attributes, is simply a mark of spiritual incapacity. The Book of Toth is a great example of Crowley's occult knowledge. It's highly recommended if one is interested to see the world as he did. Crowley's work on the tarot kept him going through the Blitz. In fact, just before the bombs fell, he moved to the Richmond suburb of London. He enjoyed the company of Charles Camel. Like Israel Regardi, he also didn't like John Simon's book and wrote his own biography of Crowley published in 1951 with the title Alistair Crowley, The Man, The Mage, the poet. Camel didn't have a high regard for magic or for Thelema, but he appreciated Crowley as a poet and a man of the world. He felt that Thelema looked good on paper, but... It loses significance in the limelight of the philosopher's application thereof to his own life. Camel also believed most of Crowley's troubles started due to him breaking his Abramelin oath 
of using his powers only for good. He also made the observation that John Dee had received a similar message from a quote-unquote spiritual creature, much like Crowley had from Iwas. Dee's message was, Do that which most pleaseth you. Camel introduced Crowley to Ralph Shirley, editor of the Occult Review, and to Montague Summers, a popular writer on witchcraft. Camel says that by now Crowley's sex life was winding down. Alice Upham was one of his last recorded lovers. On June 18, 1941, Crowley recorded that he failed to raise an erection. His last recorded opus was an act of cunnilingus with Alice in October. Crowley was 66. He should have saved some of his semen pills. <laughs> <laughs> Crowley left London for Torquay in Devon, where he apparently quickly developed a reputation of propositioning the local ladies. His health also suffered. At one point, Lady Frida Harris found him half-dead from pneumonia, but he was nursed back to health. Another time when Crowley was close to death, Camel rushed to his bedside. Both the nurse and Camel insist that Crowley had died that night. The next day, Crowley was fine. The nurse claimed the devil himself called Crowley back from the dead. Crowley and Camel eventually broke away from each other over a money squabble whereupon Camel joined the ranks of the many people who truly liked Crowley, but was driven away by the beast. When the Blitz was over, Crowley returned back to London, moving from room to room. By now, Crowley was just wandering around Fisrovia, telling eclectic stories in exchange for drinks. In 1942, he frightened Dylan Thomas with a demonstration of mind reading. He handed Thomas some paper, asked him to draw something, and then left. Shortly after, Crowley returned and presented Thomas with an exact copy of his handiwork. Crowley, by now, was taking anywhere from four to six grains of heroin a day. He soon worked that up to ten. Wow. He was also taking vernonal, ethyl oxide, cocaine, other pharmaceuticals, and drinking heavily. His health was fading. He had lost quite a bit of weight. He went from eating steaks and his famous devilish curries to a diet of biscuits, boiled eggs, milk, alcohol, and heroin. He probably stunk to high heaven. In April of 1944, Crowley relocated to the Bell Inn at Aston Clinton, Buckinghamshire. Crowley found the place extremely boring. There was nothing to do and no one to talk to. He started corresponding with a student named Ann Mackey, explaining his cult philosophy. After suggesting other students join in, it grew into an introduction to the Thelemic way of life. He wanted to title it, Alistair Explains Everything. Sounds like a bad Disney Channel yeah. show. <laughs> it was like something on TGIF back in the 90s. Next up on Nickelodeon. <laughs> Alistair explains everything. But it was published in 1954 by Carl Germer as Magic Without Tears. Crowley, <laughs> Crowley's landlady at Bell Inn thought Crowley was a nuisance who scared the nurses by asking them to do things like sharpen his hatchet. She also said he stole from the kitchen regularly. Um, 
come on, we all know old men like this. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I dropped something. Yeah. Hey guys, look at that ass. <laughs> yeah, just, just living their You're best welcome. life. <laughs> Crowley pleaded to some of his few remaining friends to help him find another location to live. His friends searched around and, and found him a place called Netherwood. This was a large, somber 19th century mansion. Its owners, Vernon and Ellen Simons, had bohemian backgrounds, and their vision was to provide a pleasant atmosphere for artists, writers, and other creative individuals to enjoy relaxation with good food, drink, and conversation. A telegram to Netherwood announced that a consignment of frozen meat was on the way. Meat was subject at the time to war rationing, so the local postman sent a copy of the telegram to the food ministry. The inspectors were waiting for the shipment due on February 1, 1945. An ambulance pulled up and cruelly emerged from it with 50 or so parcels of books. He was always the practical joker, and the quote-unquote frozen meat was him. Crowley checked into room 13. His first order of business was topping off his heroin supply. Then he settled into a routine, where after breakfast he would walk in the garden, wearing his scarlet blazer and purple slippers, stopping to make his adoration to the sun. He would eat dinner in his room and sleep during the day to stay up late, reading and writing. Many people visited Crowley in his last days, this is nowhere near a complete list of visitors. For that complete list, readers should look to Netherwood, the last resort of Aleister Crowley. There is also much to be said about the many of the people he corresponded with during this time, all which I'm sure will appear in future episodes we release at one point or another. I'm just going to go through a few of them real fast. There was Jack Parsons, a founder of the Pasadena Jet Propulsion Laboratory, a Thelemite and member of the Agape Lodge in California, who corresponded with Crowley, seeking his advice on a matter concerning the arrival of L. Ron Hubbard to the Agape Lodge. David Kerwin was the last member to be initiated into the OTO by Crowley. One visitor was Richard Ellman, who was in the middle of writing a book about William Butler Yeats. He was mostly interested in Crowley's account of his magical battle with his rival poet. <laughs> oh, the battle. Yeats' The Man in the Mask was published in 1948. James Laver, author of a book on Nostradamus, and the curator at the time of the Victorian and Albert Museum, noticed flecks of blood on Crowley's shirt sleeves. Crowley told Laver that magic is something we do to ourselves. Explaining, however, that it is more convenient to assume the objective existence of an angel who gives us new knowledge than to allege that our own invocation has awakened a supernatural power in ourselves. Did he just deny the reality of Iwis being a discarnate intelligence? Oh, no, he oh. didn't. He just called him an astral hobo. <laughs> Or is he more saying that it is impossible for other men not as great as him to achieve such things? Eh, either way. Knowing him, that's probably what he was saying. <laughs> I like the idea of him calling him a national hobo, but, you know, whatever. Gerald Gardner visited Crowley 
Gardner is most famously known as the founder of Wicca. He found Crowley a frail, gentle, archendeaconish figure. Gardner was not sure of Crowley's power, but he believed that Crowley himself believed in them, and that this delusion enabled him to exploit many people. I agree with uh, Gardner mm. on many levels. Yeah. On May 15th, 1947, Crowley was surprised by the arrival of his only son, Ataturk, then 10 years old. Crowley had not seen him or his mother Patricia since he was a baby. This is actually a mother and child Crowley didn't abandon. Rather, they had abandoned him. They would stay with him until he died. Aww. The most important visitor to Netherworld. <laughs> Netherworld. <laughs> the most important visitor to Netherwood was John Simons. His biography of Crowley most likely saved Crowley from fading into oblivion like so many other occultists. Damn you, Simon. <laughs> Simons brought along the astrologer Rupert Gledow. Simons also knew Victor Newberg. In fact, he lived in his flat. He wanted to pin an article on Newberg's guru. Upon being told Glidow was an astrologer, Crowley said astrology was a fraction of 1% true. Simons and Glidow spoke of the end of the world, Crowley lecturing his own revelation about the new eon of, quote, force and fire, unquote. Crowley thought well of Simons and made him one of his literary executors. Simons would do a critical review of Crowley and release The Great Beast in 1951. He didn't like Crowley one bit, and admitted he hoped to make a name and fortune over Crowley. Simons was appalled that by the 1960s, the quote-unquote love generation had taken up Crowley as a hero. But without this first, rather biased account, which other biographers have responded to, most people would not know who Aleister Crowley even was. In 1969, the remaining unreleased four volumes of The Confessions of Aleister Crowley was edited by John Simons and Kenneth Grant. Then it was published in a single unabridged version. Crowley turned 72 on October 12, 1947. One of Crowley's last visitors was Lewis Wilkerson, who noted a certain sorrow. At one point, Crowley apologized to Wilkerson. I am sorry. You have wasted your time visiting a log. It was clear to Wilkerson that Crowley didn't think of his life as a success, but also not as a complete failure. Crowley wanted fame, but got infamy instead. After all, he was just a man, a troubled one, who had no chance left of putting things right. Much has been written about Crowley's final day in his last words. A very complex man who still lives on as a folk anti-hero, I think deserves whichever story you choose from the following accounts. With tears running down his cheeks, he told Freda Harris, I am perplexed. Or, Harris was not present, and his last words were, Sometimes I hate myself. Or... <laughs> Someone on the floor below them heard a crash. When they rushed to Crowley's room, he was already dead. Or, according to Patricia Doherty, Ataturk's mother, 
who was at Netherwood when Crowley died. There were no confessions, no remorse, and no regrets. Crowley died happily and peacefully. According to his death certificate, Edward Alexander Crowley died on December 1st, 1947 of myocardial degeneration and chronic bronchitis, exasperated by chronic heroin use. Among his effects, discovered in his wallet, was an abramelin talisman stained with menstrual blood and semen. What a nice hand-me-down to his son. Son, I need you to take this. This is the And remember your old man. Don't smell it, though. These are your lost brothers and sisters. Yeah, but (laughs) if you can't ever get it up, just lick it. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Alexander Crowley's remains were cremated on December 5th, 1947. Reports of the attendees at his memorial service differ. Crowley had prepared a collection of his works before his demise called The Last Ritual. Lewis Wilkerson carried it out. First, there was a proclamation of the law. He then read extracts from the Book of the Law, followed by some of Crowley's poems and passages from his Gnostic Mass. When Wilkerson recited Hymn to Pan, as he intoned, Yo Pan, Yo Pan, Yo Pan, the small group chanted back, Yo Pan. Wilkerson then reminded the mourners, Love is a law. Love and a will. Patricia then placed red roses on the coffin. There are many mysteries surrounding the great beast's demise. One from James Laver is that his doctor, William Brown Thompson, threatened to cut off Crowley's heroin supply. 24 hours after Crowley's death, this doctor himself died. The official report is that it was due to natural causes. But the Daily Express, who wouldn't even let up after Crowley's death, ran the headline, Crowley Doctor Dies. Magician put curse on him. Crowley wanted his ashes to be preserved along with his seal ring in a casket and entrusted to the Grand Treasurer of the OTO. The urn was then sent to Carl Germer in America as per Crowley's request. There is a mystery as to where Crowley's ashes ended up. So like with his last words and day, let's just do another choose your own. Germer informed correspondents that Crowley's ashes had been buried at the foot of the tallest pine tree on his property in Hampton, New Jersey. Or, while discussing with his wife Sasha what to do with the ashes, she, not a thelemite, grabbed the urn, and smashed it against a tree, exclaiming, There! This is now the Alistair Crowley tree! Or, (laughs) she smashed it, didn't say anything, and the ashes were just scattered by the winds. All we are is dust in the wind. (laughs) And we are finished. Oh my my god! God. Good research, Dave. Dave, take a dow, take a dow. A dow? A dow. Take a dow. <laughs> you have to dab and bow at the same time. A dab. A dabow. Wow. He what was a life. One fucked up person. Okay, so I have to do something real quick, guys. 
Mr. Uh, Crowley. No, I have to actually look up online and see if I can find Alistair Crowley's son. Oh, he's, oh, he's on there. Oh, no, I want to see that motherfucker. He's a famous person. Yeah, he wrote a book, too. Because, like, it's not like a situation where we have Madame Vlasky and we don't, like, really know where her, lo- like, she never had kids, she right? She never had sex. So, so, yeah, she, like, died a virgin. So, like, this is really weird. Well, it's not weird. I mean, if you're a virgin out there, stay a virgin. Do what you got to do. Whatever. But Alistair Crowley was a sex fiend, a fucking just, yeah, right? And he's actually passed on his bloodline. Therefore, to multiple people. To multiple people. We just know about the ones that were of the Scarlet Women. Think of how many like prostitutes he had sex with and all that. How many of them might have become impregnated? Like, there could be millions of little crawlies out there, <laughs> or thousands at least. <laughs> I'm just saying. Now like, we know that, why the world's so fucked up. Is yeah, because <laughs> like his fucking scene. But that's what I'm saying though. Is like that's what's most interesting about this is that. Like, you have multiple situations where you have these... I'm not even going to call him a philosopher, but that's what best suits my mind, okay? Um, you have these people who have gone out and, you like, they've experienced these things. They've created these orders. They've, you know, basically t- taken their vision and, 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 and spread it to all the minds of the f- people that would absorb it and created this fucking following. But now we have offspring that currently live with his same blood, not that his blood's going to pass on to, like, you know, that, that those ideals, because, as you said, like, his son and his wife were the only people that he didn't abandon. They abandoned him, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, like, you know, you got to think, okay, maybe one of these OTO members or whatever would eventually, you know, express some sort of, like, hey, by the way, I knew your father, and these were his teachings. Do you want to continue these? Oh, Crowley left... Added Turk a lot of writing and wanted him to follow in his footsteps. Yeah. I mean, he was his heir. Yeah, yeah. I have really wanted. I haven't really looked into his life, but but I will, and maybe we'll do an episode on it if there's something there. You know, as long as it doesn't involve Neo Pan 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 Pan. Okay, <laughs> I can't go through that again. It's in my dreams. I'm just gonna have to like find a way to send that recording to Eli's computer so it just plays while he sleeps. Fuck. <laughs> So the worst thing is like wake up in the wasteland. <laughs> Eopad, Eopad. Leave me alone, Crowley. Leave me alone. Start burning sage. Why does it smell like ass in here? Now we're gonna let's finish this off with the same question we asked at the end of the first episode. Are you still here? <laughs> <laughs> is there anything that you can associate yourself with in Crowley? No, no. But a son, yes. No. No. If I had a family member that fucked up, I would, I, I, whether it be my father, mother, second distant, didn't matter how close the, the fuck as far as like genetically code wise, I would have dipped completely. <laughs> <laughs> so I have everything that I, I can basically match up with. That's the only person I can match up in the story. I have to say, other than the fact that I went to college for three years and grad, didn't get a degree, that's still the only thing I have in common with him. But towards the end of his life, I did start to see that slippage yeah. that happens with most older people. And when they I, start to regret their lives. Well, and it started making me think about our dad and it started making me think about our grandpa. And just when they started getting closer to that end, just like their mentality change. And he had a little bit of that, but not nearly as much as what he should have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... I mean, there was a little part of me that was kind of like feeling for his kids and, you know, things like that. But it was at the same time, I'm like, 
he's still a douchebag. Yeah. You know, like he, he was so full of himself and so narcissistic and egomaniac that it just, yeah, it just was blah. Yeah. We have now finished it. Five episodes. This is the longest series we have done. Um, you know, at the end of his life, the number of thelemites could be counted on two hands. Now, there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of them all over the world. Yeah. Well, Fascinating. I said, the one thing I have to say, I have to thank Crowley because he kind of gave, insp- gave an inspiration to rock and roll. Yeah. He did. Yeah. yeah. And we probably wouldn't have rock and roll as we have it today without Crawley. Well, so I have to give him nods and that because I'm huge into rock and Dave roll. Dave and I had talked about this the other day and it was him as a person. He's, I don't like him as a person. But the things he brought to the world, yeah. not all were bad. Yeah. So I'm going to add on that. So And also kind of combine those two. Because he gave you the... Sorry, he didn't give you the ability, but he almost made it to where you were okay to question religion. Yeah. You know? He he because like a lot of the music that like like Chad and I listen to, or a lot of the music that we all listen to, because we all kind of have the same taste, especially like in the metal category, n- none of it's Christian rock, no. none of it's Christian metal, none of it's whatever. And a lot of them have to do with, <laughs> you know, not the guideline of Christianity or any other religion, yeah. right? It's more so on the darker side of things or whatever. Uh, and the same situation goes with like just the ability to create that kind of lyricist and that poet or whatever. You, you don't always have to have this enlightened ability to write down, oh, the sun is shiny, oh, the sun is gray, whatever. It, it, it's You're always going to have that darker part of it. And I feel like he kind of made a way for you to express the darker parts of your mind, you yeah. know? So, I mean, not all of it was bad, but I still can live without Neopan, Neopan, Neopan. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I was going to say, his love drug or yeah, sex, drugs, and, and poetry turned into sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah. And Absolutely. I salute you, sir, <laughs> for that. <laughs> well, and, you know, Dave was talking about how frustrating it was that he would have these ideas and kind of these epiphanies, but he would never correlate it back to his own life and change his ways. And then for that, I kind of feel for him. Because I don't feel like he was able to actually progress in this life because that stopped him. He never had, he had all these like magical awakenings, but he never had the personal awakenings that I feel like we need to succeed, you know? Well, it's like the situation with the saying, you know, those who can teach can't do and those who can do can't teach. It's the same situation. Yeah. You know, I mean... It's kind of like the same situation. Like whenever we've had our conversations before, you're like, "What you need to do is this, this, and this." And I'm like thinking to myself, "Well, shit, yeah, it makes more sense." (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and it's like not that you're not being able to, you know, introduce that to your own life. It's experiences you've already had, but in most situations, people aren't allowed able to when they're expressing their um, opinions or their information to you. A lot of times, they can't actually do it themselves. Well, it was one of those things. Yeah, he could. He could tell you how to do it, but he himself couldn't do it. Yeah. He himself could not look past himself enough to improve himself because he already felt he was the best that yeah. he that anybody would ever be. So he couldn't he, there was no way he could improve himself because yeah. he was already the best. And you can't make the best better. Exactly. So 
I mean, I, I feel, I kind of feel for him in that sense. Cause I do, I feel like he probably lacked a lot of self development and self growth. Yeah. And he was so fixated on like, and this is what we were going to talk about after the episode. So I guess we're not going to do it after the credits. Let's do it now. <laughs> yeah, <sorry>. um, <laughs> he, he didn't progress forward as a human, No, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't know. I, it's, it's sad because he kind of stayed stagnant and he, he was so focused on rebellion against the norm that I don't feel like he ever was able to really successfully rebel because he, it was all childish things that he did in order to rebel yeah. and he never grew as a person. G- Gary Lockman said, if this is the eon of the quote-unquote crowned and conquering child. I wish he would grow up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, that's what, he was a big child. I mean, no, he down was. to yeah. the end. Like, yeah. And when did he start dabbling with drugs? Um, in his early 20s. Okay. Uh, when he was still with the Golden Dawn before the fracturing. When I... Was taking my psych classes, you know, my, my three years that I didn't get a degree in. One of the things we learned in one of our, um, I think it was an abnormal psych class. It was about drug use. And, and it was developmental psych. It was in drug use. And when you start using drugs, your brain actually will stop developing. And you will be continually trapped at that age mentally until you are able to get cleaned off of the drugs. But and I didn't start taking drugs at eight. and i kind of see that in crowley like he started that drug use and his brain quit developing and so he never never emotionally and mentally developed past that age and i've seen that with other people i know and friends that i've had that have gotten into drugs they do they are much more immature immature than somebody else their age like it's like they've stopped maturing at that age yeah and uh, that's that, that was uh, I'm like I said, that was huge in the high school that I went to. But I mean, honestly, there is a few. Well, not a few. There's a large group of kids that were doing more than just marijuana uh, mm-hmm. from eighth grade on to. And I don't know how the fuck they graduated, but um, their their mental state were was very, very childlike. Yeah. Um, and it was just. It wasn't like the regular teenage like rebellion bullshit. It was like you know, <laughs> almost toddler like mm-hmm. you know, and well, I guess it would be like toddler like grown up if you will, because it wasn't like you know he took my toy. It was more so, you know, don't take the last biscuit and then cry about it. Yeah, you know. So yeah. Well, I, I'm glad we're done with Crowley. Oh God, I do. I mean, back to that though. Oh, um, how else do you think somebody who grew up so repressed, where the only book he was allowed to read was the Bible, yeah, and then just the lack of positive male role model, and I mean, how else would it have turned out for him in his twenties? No, that's right. Yeah, I I could see it and becoming then, drug use and things like that. And then and then but, yeah, and then the drugs just locked him into that that state of mind yeah. where he had to be quote unquote satanizing. Well, he definitely already had some underlying psychological and emotional issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was rebelling and getting kicked out of school at, you know, what, 10? 
or younger than mm. that. It was like it was ele- it after was eleven. After. Eleven after yeah. his dad died. First of all, that I mean, his dad died. That's traumatic. And anymore, you know, if your kid starts doing that after the death of a parent. You get them counseling. You know, you get them help. He didn't get that. He never got that that help that he needed, and he developed into what he is. Yeah, or was. Yeah. Um, one thing I started. I've always kind of pictured Crowley as like old history. <laughs> but as we're reading this, especially towards the end of the days, that's relatively recent history in the scheme of that's what I was yeah. occultism. Yeah, like I was in the he died in the forty seven. Our dad was already five years old by that point. You know, like mm-hmm. not that our dad is young by any means, but I mean that's literally just two generations before it. Like it's just yeah. like right there. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so I mean in the grand scheme of occultism early occultism that's really young real young what i found most fascinating was his obsessions and his little allowances like first off when he started doing the magic it was i'm gonna wear this magical amulet and only allow myself the purest of thoughts in action and then he's like i'm gonna be a little bit of a bastard and then he's like i'm gonna experiment with these drugs and then he's like i might do a little hashies and try some magic to eh, a little bit of mescaline you know <laughs> Let, let's then just 10 throw grams that in of there. heroin a day and and then he's kind of like well i could maybe try a little sex with ritual to <laughs> full blown out let's get the goats in here let's get the blood in here let's make some cakes out of human shit and i mean this guy he would go from zero to fucking 11 with all of it it's kind of a, like bipolarish maybe but then also that's that's almost textbook addiction yeah you know like addictive personality disorders and I mean, all of us here have been addicted to something. Yeah. And it usually started with, oh, I'll just try it. Cake. Like, oh, I'll try it a little bit more. All right, now I need a little bit more. And like, it's just like a, an increase into it. And it always starts out with, well, just a little. And then it... Well, yeah, just, just one piece. Little yeah. Just one piece of cake. Just one, one piece. Okay. One I cigarette. Like, one just, cigarette won't bug me. I like cake. One pack. No, one pack's... One, one cart, but no big deal. <laughs> it's a great callback to his life where after the age of 11, the passing of his father, he said, I'm going to sin a little and then I'm going to turn it up to 11 mm-hmm. and go for the ultimate sin. Yeah. I wonder if he ever found it. I don't Instead know. Instead of calling it a dick, <coughs> I'm just going to start calling it Crowleyisms. Crowleyism. Sorry. Yeah. Instead of calling I'm it what? Crowley eyes to cigarettes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no well, longer addicted. Crowley no, eyes. I'm just doing my best, <laughs> best Crowley. What was it? Le- Leah called it something like that. Um, her addiction to Crowley was um, a- ACIDIS, I think, is what she called it. <laughs> the, oh, how he was able to get all the women, too. Like, that reminds me a lot of Trump. Magic drug is in poetry, Amy. <laughs> Sex drug. You know what? Have, have you seen some of the rock stars that pulled the oh nicest oh tail yeah. in the world? Well, I, I will admit, young troll, trolly, young Crowley is not horribly looking, horrible looking. But then when you start looking at as he gets older and all the like fucking heroin and shit that he's got, 
He had to have stunk. Oh yeah, he reeked of ether. He he like, would he was huffing almost a pint of ether a day. Yeah, like smell is a big issue for me. If that you shit stink, don't matter if you got drugs, drugs, sex, and money, and like, poetry. Yeah. <laughs> Power of positive thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I smell roses. I smell roses. <laughs> yeah, I would just gag and I wouldn't be able to even come close to him. But you know, to each their own. And no king shaming. If you're into any of this stuff. Do you, boo, but make it consensual. <laughs> Just as yeah. long as it's consensual, do do you, boo. Hey, all but his were consensual. His were, supposedly. He was an inspiration to so many <laughs> spiritual <laughs> movements <coughs> over the course of the last 50 years. Uh, Wick is one of them. Yeah. Uh, Satanism is another. Luciferianism is one. Most of your left-hand paths come directly from Crowley's teachings. Yeah. Even though his was kind of a blending of uh, previous schools of philosophy. Say, most of his teachings were just reiterations of other people's teachings. Which, and which he just kind of put his own little spin on it. Which isn't a bad thing, because, you know, if you take a blend of somebody else's stuff, it's a lot better than just making it up from your yeah. own imagination. Yeah, well, it makes you know, it, easy, it also own. makes it easier to get followers. Yeah, because if, if it roughly sounds like something they're accustomed to, yeah, Christianity did it with the Book of Enoch. I'm just, uh, just saying. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's very prominent when you're trying to get followers. You don't want something just completely out of left field. It's much harder to win followers that way. But if you I can, mean, I 100 percent did it <coughs> with uh, Pleiadiacs. We only have two members, Chad. Three. Oh, three Three members. See, we're growing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you got to say about that? I ain't First of all, I think I need to back out because you, you didn't even know how many members you have. <laughs> we, we, we might have more. They're just not They're communicating just not with us because we told them they didn't have The Adiacs. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so, Crowley. Mr. Crowley. We're going to. Oh, go ahead. As far as black magic, that is such an iffy term. Yeah. Because it's based on what system of magic you're using. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's split along selfish and unselfish lines. Sometimes it's split along material and the spiritual. I mean, who's to say? Who's to say if he did black magic or not? What irritates me about it, though, is like you have... <laughs> so, for a while there, or actually not even for a while, you, you, still, you still have it today... Uh, People consider any type of magic to be black magic. Some do. Yeah. So it's like that. that it kind of ties along with what you're saying is like who really knows if it was ever black magic or if it was just magic. Magic. Because yeah. mm -hmm. you know? according to um, Eastern philosophy, all Western magic is black magic. Yeah. Because it's aimed at material gains within the world. Yeah. Uh, so. People consider voodoo on a lot of points to be black magic. Yeah. Now, a lot of that comes from misinformation. And, it, exactly. And but, the same situation with magic in general, though. But but even people who do look into it and and try to understand it still do see it that way based off of uh, belief and, and whichever system they're, they're working through. Yeah. Well, if you've made it to the end of Crowley with us, pat yourself on the back. I can't touch. Give yourself a high five. Self five. <laughs> and um, work on the eighth rule law. Or? And yeah, there won't be any talk after the thing because we've already done our 
little discussion here before. So, but if you want to continue the discussion, come onto our group and yeah. you know we'd like yeah, my, to hear yeah. what you think about all this. Join our Facebook group. Let's talk about let's talk about some Crowley. I'm still not a hundred percent sure that it wasn't him that woke me up the other night. If you're on a Facebook group, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> There's a reason for you to join our Facebook group and figure out what the hell he's talking about. But follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at UMP Normalcy. Our website is umpnormalcy.com. And you can buy your merchandise. You can check out our books, our profiles, our pictures, our everything else. Um, if you are not a Patreon, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash umpnormalcy. We have another podcast that is on Patreon only. Um, it's $3 a month to subscribe to it. And you get to listen to us talk about true crime. So if you are a fan of true crime, go check it out. It's just a monthly podcast that we're doing right now. If we get a big following behind it, we might start doing it bi-weekly or weekly as well. Um, and if we get enough Patreon support for it, then that'll help us push it to be a um, free-for-everybody podcast. But we just kind of need the funding for that right now as well. So Also, the funding actually also helps us to do other... Uh, situations as well like we talked about in the past of like doing on location um, on on location podcast allows us to do a little bit of traveling in there and actually do our own um, investigations on on, on certain things um, that we have access to basically Um, so like if you ever listen to any of our like haunted episodes as far as our uh, haunted hotel episodes there's multiple hotels around here that we could actually go out and do that Uh, unfortunately we are uh, like I said, a uh, little, uh, I forgot what the hell I was saying. Underfunded. <laughs> Underfunded. <laughs> and our tiers have changed. So if you looked at it before, our tiers have changed. It starts at $3 now. That gets you a shout out on the podcast as well as all the um, extra content that goes on it. Um, at $5, you get a sticker and <sighs> all the previous things. You get access to it. At $10, you get a sticker and a mug. And also a nude for me. Um, and then at $20... Well, now we're not going to get any $10. <laughs> <laughs> no, it allows them to skip the, the $10 one and go straight to $20, right? At, yeah, sure. At $20, <laughs> at 20 you get a nude from Chad. No. <laughs> <laughs> at 50 At 20 you get all the above. You know, the, the shout-out, the sticker, sticker mug, mug a and shirt. a T-shirt, access to the footage, all that stuff. And you also get on a little mailing list and things like that. So... We change it up a little bit and get you guys some merch as well. Um, I think that covers everything for us. Good night, Mr. Crowley. We are done with you for now. <laughs> oh, he'll come up. He'll come up later. Oh, I'm That's sure he will. He's using his uh, semen pills. To <laughs> Dave, thank you for all the research that you done, man. Yeah, it was you. very, oh. very, very, very enlightening. Well, thank you. It was very interesting reading into all of it. So until next time, keep digging. Mr. Crowley from the grave. <laughs>